Welcome to season three of Overcoming Working Mum Burnout. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Kerr, mum, behavior scientist, and burnout survivor. I interview DEI leadership and mental health experts to uncover burnout solutions at the individual, family, work, and cultural levels. When mums thrive, the world benefits. Like me, are you passionate about helping other women leaders and frustrated by the status quo for women at work? Are you disappointed by the band-aids we're applying to problems like bias and burnout, which affect women's ability to rise? Women are spending more time on these issues, but are not being rewarded or recognized for this work. And when women try to suggest systems solutions, their ideas are dismissed. In When Women Lead, Julia Borston showed that VC-backed successful women leaders are disruptive. Instead of the quick fixes preferred by men, they see both the forest and the trees and get to the root cause of problems. I want to give women the confidence and credibility to lead in this way and to build upon their intuition with science-backed leadership strategies. The five evidence-based strategies for my science are leading through complexity with compassion, using the social ecological model to solve macro and micro problems leading with impact, using behavior change science to create systems change, leading with insight, using implementation science to create the conditions for successful cultural change, leading with curiosity, using peer learning collaboratives to support experimenting, and leading with clarity, managing burnout so you and those you lead can thrive through change. In conjunction with my leadership training, I'm facilitating small groups of women executives in peer learning collaboratives. This is a scientific process that's used in medicine when important new recommendations need to be put into practice and there is likely to be pushback. Peer learning collaboratives leverage the supportive environment of group coaching, but with more targeted goals, greater accountability, and a quality improvement process that measures impact through learning cycles. They provide a safe environment for women to put their new skills and strategies into action while learning from other women leading similar change efforts in their organizations. Does this resonate with you? Would it help women you know? Please message me on LinkedIn if you'd like to learn more. This week, I'm learning from Ruchika Tolshayan, the author of Inclusion on Purpose and the Diversity Advantage. She is also the founder of Kanda, a company that supports inclusion strategies in the workplace. Ruchika describes her personal journey that led to her focus on inclusion and how the biggest barrier is not recognizing your own role in changing inclusion. In particular, how our stories of working hard get in the way of seeing our privilege. Ruchika provides several helpful frameworks to embrace the discomfort of addressing inclusion and making a difference. I hope you learn as much as I did from this conversation. Hi, my name is Ruchika Toshian. I am the mother of one feminist son who is five years old. And I also like to say that I'm a mom or an auntie to a number of other wonderful children in my life, most of all my niece, who just is about to turn 18 months old and lives in Singapore. 
And my work, my professional title is I'm the author of Inclusion on Purpose, an intersectional approach to creating a culture of belonging at work. And I am the CEO and founder of Candor, an inclusion strategy practice. Thank you so much for that introduction. And I love that you mentioned your son, your five-year-old, is already a feminist. Can you say a little more about that? I'm very inspired by my friend, Dr. Sonora Joa's book, How to Raise a Feminist Son. And I highly recommend it for all people, really anyone who has a boy in their life, whatever that means. Certainly if you're a parent or caregiver, very important. But really, I think we should all take responsibility for raising feminist boys, and that means boys who are in touch with their emotions, boys who stand up for gender rights, specifically women's, girls' and women's rights, boys who do not subscribe to ideals of toxic masculinity and uphold toxic masculinity. And it's certainly an epidemic, as we know, here in the United States, we've been going through some very painful weeks and months and years and decades, depending on what timeline you want to focus on, I'd really say boys feeling very alienated, really being let down by these ideals of hyper-masculinity and toxic masculinity. So raising a feminist son, to me, uh, as my friend Sonora writes in her fantastic book, was really about creating this next generation of boys who will then become men who are very much in touch with the reality of the world today, rather than living in this toxic masculine sort of ideals. Thank you so much for sharing that. I can relate to that. My son is 13 and going through adolescence anyway, but he is also highly sensitive and really feels his emotions very deeply and gets very frustrated when girls in his class say, oh, boys don't have feelings. So I'm going to take that recommendation and (laughs) listen to that book and see what I can learn. Thank you for that. Could you describe to us your career journey? I know you've lived in a lot of different places, but maybe focusing on the career part of that journey. And how did motherhood play a role in it, if any? And I've had a career journey that very much is non-linear and a lot of it was unplanned. So I went to university wanting to actually study and practice law. A lot of what I heard in speaking of motherhood, a lot of what I heard growing up in a pretty traditional Indian family in Singapore was good Indian girls don't become lawyers, good Indian girls focus and prioritize the triple M of marriage and motherhood and basically anything to do with being maternal in their lives, caregivers, daughters, sisters, daughter-in-laws, etc. I wanted to be a lawyer and the agreement that I had with my family was that I'd take a couple of law courses that I wouldn't qualify as a lawyer until I was very sure. And I guess in some ways they were right because I ended up studying politics and history in my undergrad. I also became the editor of uh, our college newspaper and that just sparked in me this passion for news, for storytelling, for being able to unearth undercovered stories. And essentially from there, I became a journalist. I studied journalism, I got a master's in journalism and became a business reporter. And again, was lucky to to cover stories around the world in a financial crisis of 2008 and certainly markets and companies and cool entrepreneurs around the world. And then life took an unexpected turn where about 10 years ago, I got an opportunity to join a technology company, use my skills in journalism to market the company and had a very negative experience, just not this one company, but just an industry that was very hostile to women, as we now know. 
but certainly at that time, I was like, am I going a little crazy? Is there something wrong with me? Why am I struggling so much? It's just me not leaning in enough. So I quit my job. This was before I had a child. I wanted to take my journalism skills and write a book about uh, what it really takes to create a workplace that is gender balanced, that is very accommodating to women and really allows women's skills and everything we bring to the table and especially all those parts of our identities, whether you're a caregiver, whether you're a mother, whether you are certainly for myself as a woman of color, a woman of very different ethnicities and identities. And what does it look like to create an inclusive workplace? And again, this is at a time where we weren't really talking about inclusive workplaces. And so I wrote that book, thought the only person who would buy the book would be my mom. And then I would go back in marketing or journalism. And the book did well, but really more than that, it sparked that passion in me that the rest of my career would be focused on really surfacing issues of bias, of exclusion, of discrimination, and then meaningfully turning that around to create inclusive workplaces, giving birth to my son a few months before Donald Trump became the president of the United States. It was a very painful and a very sort of sharp awakening that for the foreseeable future for the rest of my life, really my purpose was around creating workplaces and a society that would never again threaten women's rights, people of color's rights and BTQ rights and can go on and on. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I think motherhood does amplify our protective instinct. And when that was coinciding with something that was such a threat, I'm not surprised this became even more to focus and a passion for you. So I loved reading your first book, The Diversity Advantage. For me, I literally was listening to it and it was a microphone drop moment for me. I was like, business case made, let's do this. And I was so convinced that it was so clear and presented and so well researched. So maybe just before we get into your current book, we could talk a little bit about the main arguments you shared there, what impact the book did have, but then why another one was needed because I was like okay this is all we need this is the answer and obviously we all know it takes more than that but tell us a little about that book as well. Yeah I'm very proud of the diversity advantage because I wrote it at a time where I think we were not having the conversation around what the real issues were that were preventing us from having a workplace that was very inclusive and supportive to women. And again, as we think about multiple identities, women of color, women who are caregivers, women with disabilities, LGBTQ women, et cetera, et cetera. And we know women carry a multitude of identities. And I think what was very surprising to me is the narrative continued to be women aren't leaning in enough. I think we have unfortunately really made it very challenging for women to even name the issues that they're facing. So much of the solutions we see in the workplace today are still, and in society, are geared towards women as individuals changing themselves. You need to lean in, you need to negotiate, you need to advocate for yourself. And the research was very clear that actually, even when women do that, they face pushback because of the gender norms that exist in our society. And then I think more than that, it allows organizations, people with privilege and power, whether it's as individual men, white men, et cetera, or really even organizations, these very strong structural 
sort of institutions, whether it's again an organization or really society at large, but political institutions to also absolve themselves of any responsibility for making change for women and doing the hard work of looking within themselves about what's the personal responsibility. So in many ways, the diversity advantage was written because I was a naive 20-something-year-old who thought, I'll write this book, I'll do the research. It's very clear what the solutions are. And people will read this book and they're going to want to make a change. And the reality is that didn't happen. It certainly opened up the conversation more. And I was able to speak more frankly to some leaders who understood and who were already on board. But I think the harder part was I remember this moment I had where I spoke to a CEO of a very well-known financial institution whose institution was, again, publicly on the record in the news, known for trying to bring in more female entrepreneurs and fund more female-owned startups and create a more sort of gender-balanced startup and investment ecosystem. And I remember him turning to me and he said, oh, thank you for your book. I'm going to give it to my wife, who is a stay-at-home mother. And it was that moment where I realized that people are going to see the diversity advantage and they're going to immediately say, oh, that doesn't apply to me. This is a book for women's leadership. And so the next book, in many ways, was me trying to correct my folly of saying, oh, if I give you all the data and I make a factual case for this by itself, you're going to understand your individual role in making change because that was not the case with the diversity advantage. Inclusion on purpose is really me saying and me recognizing and being very explicit in saying that actually, no, you need to take personal responsibility. Like you can have all the data, you can have a nice press release about how wonderful your organization is, but unless you can actually name what you're doing almost on a daily basis to create a more inclusive environment for women, specifically women of color, you're not going to be able to make the type of change you want to. And I think that's such a great goal. And if it's any reassurance, recently that somebody reached out to me because California legislators were questioning the business case of having a caregiver status in the workplace. And so I said, okay, if you need any business arguments, they're all here. They're all in this book. So they exist. So even if it's one of those things, it's going to be that support case that once people have changed some sort of mindset, then it's a great support background. So just before we get into the details and the frameworks and the really practical solutions you provide in the book, let's just talk about the book launch and what it's been like for you coping with the self-promotion, which you write about, which I can also relate to, and coping with that promotional calendar because even one of your friends and fellow authors Deepa Prisman she recently shared with me that because it became virtual there's no logistical barriers to doing more that you're constantly doing interviews like today so I'm so grateful but tell us a bit about how you prevent burnout and how you cope so that others can learn from that experience because I'm really grateful how actively you speak about your coping strategies. I have to say I'm very grateful and a lot of people have said to me, Richika, you're actually really lucky that you had such a positive reception. You've been asked to speak at all these wonderful places. The hard part that the pandemic really exacerbated is for a lot of authors, it took away the joy of actually connecting 
with your audience in person. And I had just the right amount of in-person when I felt safe and with all the protocols in place. I even was lucky enough to have a physical in-person book launch, which certainly was capped and the rest of it was virtual. But it really, it gave me that sense of purpose to come out into a hall and actually an auditorium and actually be in conversation with a woman who has really inspired my work, Ijeoma Uro, who is a friend and also wrote the forward for Inclusion on Purpose. But it was exhausting and it was really hard for a household where my partner and I both work and work outside the home. Both of us did not see that model growing up. We both grew up in Asia and both our mothers were, and in this case still are, stay-at-home parents, essentially. And that was very difficult for me sometimes. And I would feel that real guilt and any sense of burnout that I felt over the pandemic and really in my life as a working mom, I would say has been exacerbated by trying to figure out and navigate what does it look like to create almost a model of working motherhood that I have never seen in my life for me up close. I hadn't interacted with someone who looked like me and had certain cultural expectations of how I want to raise my child and what I want the norms in my household to look like, who also was a woman who worked outside the home, who did paid work outside the home. And that was very challenging for me. So even during the book launch, there were moments where literally 45 minutes before I'm supposed to be on stage, I'm like, oh, does my five-year-old have snacks for school tomorrow? Is dinner on the table ready? Will the sitter who we've arranged for arrive on time? If they don't, what's my contingency plan? The little bit of travel I had to do, you know, very, very stressful trying to do that delicate dance again with my spouse that has a full-time job as well. So it was really difficult. And I have to say, I saw the difference between some of my friends and other authors who either had much older children or did not have children or perhaps had a different setup at home where they had a lot of help and a lot of support with being mothers as well. But for me, that was not the case. And towards the end of the month, I felt quite ill. I was quite unwell by the end of March, which was the month that my book launched this year and felt pretty burnt out by the end of the month, which is why I'm really glad that I then took time off because I really needed it. The one last thing I will say is whatever amount of promotion you think you need to do, you can always do a little bit less. It's better to be strategic. It's better to be take care of your mental health and show up fully Because I learned the hard way. I learned the hard way of how I was showing up when I had four or five speaking agents, media, podcasts, things like that to promote the book in a day, how I'd show up by the time I was on to number three or four versus now where I really feel very much more in control of doing one a day, maximum two a day. And I feel like I can be so much more myself. And this is the version that I want people to become acquainted with not the version that's giving canned responses, exhausted, lack of sleep, burnt out. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I think you highlighted such an important part of the whole behavior change process, which is role models. And sometimes I've had to point that out, that the mums that are around us aren't the best role models because we're all potentially following that social expectations. We're all too busy and sometimes wearing our busy badges with pride. And so it's what are the role models for us? So I definitely see you as one when I see you post about taking breaks and a whole month off just after launch. I was like, 
that's what we need to hear more of that. Thank you. And let me tell you, I took the week before my book launch off, which I would say in many ways was radical. And certainly there were moments where I said, oh, had I done more promotion, perhaps the book would have sold better, or perhaps it would be a bestseller or whatever it is. And there are books that as soon as they launch, they get into the bestseller status. Mine didn't. And I would say some part of it was the week before the book launch. I was pretty quiet and had taken that time off. And I wouldn't do anything differently for the next book either, because I believe in the longevity of this book. And I believe in the longevity of all of our work if we're doing it right. So if we approach the work with, you know, it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. I know that's such a cliche, but truly it, you will start to burn out if you approach everything. Like if I don't do 50 things a day, I'm not going to make the type of impact I want to. You might be able to for a week or two or a month tops, but after that, you're going to then need six months off because you're just completely worn out. And I can relate to that experience too, because my TEDx talk came out recently and I've been doing a lot more promotion and focusing on that than I normally would. I love sharing other people's work. And I've noticed you sharing on LinkedIn, some of the stories and the other people that you work with. And that's something that just makes me feel of service and comfortable. And so again, when you have to just be focusing on this one thing, it is a battle. And actually what I did for myself just this week was a little thought model that I've learned to do from coaches. So the fact is, I've had 3,000 views of my TEDx talk. That's just a fact. But for me, I was hoping for a lot more and I was putting a lot of effort in to get more. So I had this one thought model where I'm disappointed, where it's not enough, where I'm working harder to do better, and then I'm exhausted. And that's the thought model. And the other thought model I then created for myself was the same fact, 3,000 views. And really, what was the result I wanted to be satisfied? So the thing was saying, it is what it is. And then feeling acceptance rather than disappointment and then saying, I have a plan. I just need to keep following it long term. And so I think that really is back to what you're saying is your books are out there. They're not going away and that it will take time to continue to have an impact. And they continue to even when you're not super focused on them. Thank you for sharing that. And I actually have thoughts on that. So as I shared, I'm trained as a journalist. So I started writing for the Internet, whatever that means. And that meant that when you're in-house in, in news organizations, certainly as many were transitioning into, I know dating myself, but were transitioning into online models, there was a lot of what matters most. And especially when we were looking at compensation models, a lot of it was like, what matters most is how many views your article gets. And it was hard because I realized that before some of my colleagues who were writing about Kim Kardashian's latest wig, or get millions of views, I, I kid you not. And here I was writing about what happens when women of color in another part of the world are struggling with certain issues, social issues, and that would get 100 views. So I realized that it's easy to value ourselves based on those because those statistics and those views, apparently that's supposed to be more meaningful and should show you a certain worth that you feel about yourself. When actually I've now experienced both ends of the spectrum, I've been really lucky that way. For last year, I co-wrote an article I'm very proud of on imposter syndrome with Jodi and millions of views, top 100 most read articles in HBO's history, top three articles in 2021. Yes, I'm very proud of all of that. But if I really took time to rest and to reflect, which I think sometimes in the world we live in right now, there's absolutely no time for that. 
But if you do, it's not those statistics that made a big difference in my life. What did is the one or two or three notes for a while that I was getting almost on a daily basis that I'm in a mid-level or even a low-level early career, first job, first internship. And I read your article and that really changed the way I see myself and how I'm going to approach the workplace. Or I used your article to have a conversation with my manager. And those were the moments that felt really profound. It wasn't the numbers as much. We're marketed to all the time to be told that, oh, what matters is these numbers and can you share these things and how grandiose is your approach and how you touch people's lives. When in actual fact, it's those individual notes that make the biggest difference. And that probably is coming to you even whether your TED Talk had three views or 300 or 3,000 or 300,000. Yes, you're right. Those comments that you get back and the new conversations and the change it creates, absolutely, they have no numeric value at all. They're so powerful. So in your book, you describe inclusion as being invited to the party, being asked to dance, But before that, being on the planning committee, and I was just like, yes, systems change means being a decision maker. That's exactly what we need. So please tell us more about your vision of inclusion and particularly why you do include that, both that individual and organizational change in your book, because you touched on that a little bit. But let's go a little deeper into kind of your overall design and approach of the book and your message. So I use Berta Myers, who is VP of Inclusion Strategy at Netflix's analogy when it comes to diversity is being invited to the party, inclusion is being asked to dance, which I think are very important and necessary outcomes for us to measure equity, being part of the planning committee, being part of the decision maker process, being part of, do you get to choose the music that you like? Do you get to wear what you like to the party? Are people allowed to bring their full authentic selves? to the party, if we extend that analogy a little bit more, is very important and often what I think leaders miss. And I think when I do advise leaders, especially when I started out early in this work, what I recognize is there was a lot of the way we do things are X and we need everyone who's underrepresented here to do X, to be able to be invited here and to be able to participate. And then I would talk to people who are underrepresented, specifically women of color, and they would say, even when I do X, I'm not not valued, A, and B, even when I do X, when I keep trying to change who I am to try and fit into this workplace that wasn't built for me, wasn't designed with me in mind, even then I face so much exclusion and bias that actually I get exhausted, I get burnt out, I can't do this long term. And especially when I again spoke to caregivers, when I spoke to mothers, when I thought of my own experience, even when I run my own business, forget even coming in day to day to work in a workplace that isn't accommodating to you as an employee. But even when for myself as an entrepreneur, the type of pushback sometimes I would face from people in positions of power and privilege was really hard. And when I wrote Inclusion on Purpose, my hope was that we would recognize how much work we have to do as individuals to try to drive that systemic change. Because if we expect, if we say, this is the way things have always been done here. If you want a seat at the table, you need to contort yourself to be able to get that seat on the table. For a lot of us, even when we get the seat at the table, we recognize the chair is broken. 
or actually there was never a chair to begin with. It was all just window dressing. So I think that we need leaders to take more responsibility and action. Great. And I think too, that experience of getting there, but then being burned out, or even sometimes I feel it's the game changes. <laughs> like you get there and suddenly it's a whole new game and the rules change all the time. It's so challenging. So I really appreciated the two frameworks that you present in the book, ADAPT and BRIDGE. And I always think frameworks and acronyms like that are so helpful. So can you just tell us a little about them so people can have these mental reminders that they can go away with and use in the workplace? I want to concentrate on the BRIDGE framework specifically for your audience. ADAPT is a framework that I came up with for organizations to focus on creating psychological safety again, centering the experiences of women of color, but really everyone, every person who has faced marginalization and discrimination and bias in the workplace, our needs need to be centered, really, when you think about creating a more inclusive workplace. But why I am so passionate about the bridge framework, which I introduced early in the book, is specifically focused on how every single person as individuals can learn and grow and learn from the mistakes that they're going to make as it relates to creating a more inclusive environment, whether it's in the workplace. I've been approached to talk about it in schools and academic settings, certainly in society at large, that individual growth, the individual responsibility to have a mindset towards growth and inclusion, what I call an inclusion mindset, is extremely necessary, again, to make the kind of change that we believe in. So the bridge framework essentially is the B stands for be comfortable with being uncomfortable because so much of this work does make you uncomfortable. It's not great to sit in as a manager or as a leader or even just a person in your classroom comes up to you and says, there was this time where you made me feel really awful and this is what you did. And it's easy in those moments to get defensive or it's easy to be so uncomfortable that you don't want to engage. And I actually say, no, push past that and get comfortable with being uncomfortable, right? The R is reflecting on what you don't know. And the reality is research in this country, in the United States, finds that three quarters of white people don't have a single friend of color. So often the perspectives that you're going to get in your life are very homogenous and reflect what you already have in your life. So I invite people to reflect on what they don't know. And then the next is the eye of the bridge framework is invite feedback, right? And invite perspectives from people that you don't already have represented in your life. And that's going to cause defensiveness. So the D is defensiveness doesn't help. And get okay with, again, those feelings of discomfort, of defensiveness, of thinking, but I'm a good person. And pushing past that and saying, I may be a good person and I may have caused harm or been exclusionary or didn't stand up when I should have. So defensiveness doesn't help. And then G is grow from mistakes because, you know, you're going to make mistakes. I've certainly made plenty and I wanted to talk a little bit about that. And then E is expect change takes time. So nothing happens overnight. A lot of the fatigue and the exhaustion that I think that people who try and do this work sometimes face and talk about is you're just not going to have overnight change happen and certainly nothing happens overnight so expect that change takes time but that doesn't mean you give up you see it as the long haul and one of the things that I wanted to talk about and the reason why I even thought about the bridge framework why I even developed it is um, 
it's very apt that we're having this conversation today, the start of Pride Month in the United States, June 1st, is I grew up in Singapore, a country which in which homosexuality is still criminalized. And so I grew up not knowing anyone, literally nobody who was openly gay or openly part of the LGBTQ community. And that's just a paradigm and a norm that I grew up with, that People, if they were in relationships, were in heterosexual relationships. It's just the way it was. And of course, I'm so thankful that I learned that actually there's a different way out there. In fact, Singapore is so specific that shows like Will and Grace were banned just because Will is gay. So that is the extent to which like you truly did not know or recognize that actually there are different ways of being and living your life. And they are perfectly normal, perfectly acceptable. And so when I thought of the bridge framework, and especially as I reflect on it today, right now, at this moment, during Pride Month, you may have been taught a very specific way, right? You may have learned that people of color, people from a different community were insert stereotype here or insert negative criticism here, whatever it is. In the same way, I, growing up, for me, I didn't know anyone who was openly part of the LGBTQ community. But the point is, you can learn, you can grow, you might feel defensive, you might feel uncomfortable, and you can still, you can push past that, you can make change. That's really the message that I'd like to leave people with. That's so inspirational. Thank you for that. So just to think a little bit also at that organizational level, because that is something for me with burnout. Yes, I think we definitely need to work on any individual changes we can to take back our control and to feel empowered in these moments and that our individual changes do contribute to the total change. And again, they contribute to cultural change more widely as well. But I think at that organizational level where I'm seeing so many companies investing in outside organizations for mental health or investing in mental health benefits, but not making the internal changes. And I see that so many of the recommendations you make in the book at that organizational level, not to take away from the fact that they are so important for diversity, equity, inclusion, But they also are important for burnout and mental health. And that in my mind, when I see mental health recommendations and DEI recommendations, they follow very much the same pattern, just with the words are different, but the techniques that you need, the tools, the strategies you need in the workplace are very similar in my mind, because it does come down to psychological safety. So I see a real intersection between those two and I hope in some way that we can leverage both of them to have a better outcome. If in some way together, they are stronger. I don't necessarily know exactly what that is, but I definitely know from the research that also bias and burnout are very much related. But I think one of the things that I think about a lot and coming from my science background, there's implementation science, which basically came from healthcare. When you're trying to put a new recommendation for safety or quality improvement into healthcare organizations, you have to understand what are all the barriers that you're going to face in that situation and how can you make either training or staffing or technical or cultural tweaks So that when you come in with your ideas, they're more likely to succeed. I think about that a lot. I was really intrigued by also your approach to understanding the barriers that you think we face to implementing these organizational changes you've outlined. So what we should do to me is very clear from what you've said. So then one of my questions is, 
what is going to get in the way. So what are you still learning along the way as people respond to the book and they say that's going to be challenging for us to do in our organizations from also your own consultancy work? Yeah, that's such a great point. And by the way, I did want to say that there's such a strong overlap between EI overall culture work, social justice work, and then certainly mental health and burnout, because indeed, even research done during the pandemic found that women of color working mothers during the pandemic experienced the highest level of mental health challenges and burnout compared with any other demographic during the pandemic. So we know those intersections of being a a woman of color, of being a mother, of doing paid work during the pandemic really created that perfect storm of the most, the highest levels of burnout and mental health issues. So I think we we need to look at that data. And again, that intersection is very important. Also, people think culture is, do you get free beer at your office or do you get ping pong days and things like that? Thinking again from that, that tech background, which by the way, definitely there were beer kegs and ping pong tables. When in actual fact, what really is culture is, do you have reasonable work accommodations? Culture means is it a norm in your organization to not have even a single moment unscheduled? Is it a norm in your organization to constantly work late? Is it a norm in your organization that you can't feel vulnerable or even feel like you can be honest and safe with your manager or with your team and say, actually, I'm having a really hard day or someone in my life is needs extra care today. I need to take time off. And that's what culture is. It's not those freebies and benefits. So I absolutely think we need to think about that more deeply. And again, then the the biggest barrier is that there isn't enough understanding of how your privilege and the advantages that you have in your life have created certain ways that perhaps you're going to experience the workplace or in society in a much more positive way than the people around you who don't have that privilege and that advantage. The biggest barrier is, but I worked hard too. So why should I have to make the change? And what people don't understand or people really need to spend more time reflecting is both things can be true. You could have had a hard life. You could have grown up in poverty or you could have had other issues in your life. Certainly life is hard for a lot of people. There's no silver bullet, but that doesn't mean that you don't have the responsibility based on the privileges and advantages you did have to make life better for those who did not have those privileges and advantages. And I think it's hard to say this, but white privilege is real. High socioeconomic privilege, which by the way I have, is real. Educational privilege is real. And if we spend all our lives saying, no, I had it hard too, it's been a difficult life for me as well, that means that I'm not responsible for someone who did not have these privileges because I have a hard life. I think that's the biggest barrier that I really see. It's the people. It's the emotional work. It's the quote unquote soft skills, which by the way, I really dislike as a framing, but it's that. In fact, many times an organization will have large initiatives. I'm thinking of large organizations. Many will have initiatives or we're going to run a pay equity audit. We're going to train our managers to be less biased. We're going to do blah, 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 blah. But then those individual leaders and managers, them not being able to become fully aware of how they have privilege and how to use that privilege for good to create a more inclusive environment. 
that's the biggest blocker. That's what I see. At least. And I was just reading a post because I really want to try and understand this experience because I think it's really hard when we get recommendations to just say no and just self-promote and negotiate. And again, it comes from a space of those things work for me and my hard work worked for me and I got to the top. So why wouldn't they work for you? And it's that sort of back to what you said at the beginning, those things don't work. But if you can't imagine that it's so hard to see. And I was reading this post where it was basically a manager was criticizing a female worker because she took so much longer to do the same job that he did. And then by mistake one day, their emails, because they were using the same email box and it got crossed and he became the woman in this situation and she became the man in the situation. And they both decided to live like that for two weeks. And he couldn't believe the pushback. It took him so long because every single email was questioning his expertise. And suddenly she became super capable because her expertise was never questioned and she was just able to continue on and on. So again, that's what I feel like. And obviously as a white woman, I have not experienced these barriers. And as a married woman, I'm not experiencing barriers that single moms are experiencing to have the challenges of same-sex partnership and parenting, that they're all so different to the barriers I've faced. So keep trying to think about that. What was it that helped me start to go, I need to understand things differently? I think particularly it's the stories that I think every time I hear stories of what people are experiencing, it brings it alive. And I think that's how, because again, we can't have empathy or compassion unless we're actually understanding where they come from. And to me, all the data, I love the data from diverse advantage, but all the data in the world doesn't convince policymakers. We know that if a policymaker is going to make a change, it's going to be the heart throbbing story of a constituent that changes things. So I really appreciate that, that you brought stories into your work as well. Thank you. And also the commonality of the experience, right? I don't see myself in data so much, but even if someone has a very different experience than me in the workplace because of their identities or in society or in the world, that is going to touch my heart because there will be some level of recognition as human beings that you would have when you listen to that story, which certainly you wouldn't if you just saw it as a data point. Thanks so much for listening today. Don't forget to check out my website, www.drjacquelinecurr.com for your free guides to prevent burnout. And please remember, burnout can be related to serious health problems. If you're experiencing physical or mental health symptoms, please contact a health provider or call the appropriate helpline. This podcast does not replace medical advice. Take care. Control, you're a fighter. Push the limits and see it. You're already there. Told you we going higher. Ain't no stopping us. We're going in for the win. And we're gonna celebrate. Then we're gonna do it all over again. And we're gonna rock this place. Cause this is our day. We're gonna do it. Yeah.